0: This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.
1: Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Barton Simmons, Director of Scouting for 24-7 Sports. We are talking recruiting. The early signing period is here this week and it has become the signing period in college football. By the end of the week, you can expect about 75-80% to of all scholarships available will be spoken for. We'll talk about the usual suspects cleaning up on the recruiting trail, including a possibly historic class for Clemson, uh, what blue chippers might be waiting until February to make their decision official, what schools still have some work to do, and how are some of the new coaches dealing with the early signing period and what their plans will be for turning around struggling programs. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. Please subscribe. and' so inclined. Give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining us this week on the podcast to talk about all things recruiting, Barton Simmons from Twenty Four Seven Sports. He is the scouting director for 24-7 Sports. He also, you can find him and his work a lot on CBS Sports. Hey Barton, thanks so much for doing this. I know it's uh it's a busy time for you and appreciate you squeezing me in.
2: Yeah. No, I'm I'm happy to do it, Ralph. How's it going?
1: It's going great. So Let's start with sort of the basic here, and before we get into the nitty gritty of what's going to happen over the next couple of days, because a lot, a lot of the guys who are going to sign have been committed for a while. Let me talk about this early signing period. now we're three years in, we've talked about it a lot. I've talked to you on this show about it a lot. How has this sort of settled in now? What's the process at this point for coaches and and players for this early signing period, and what you know and how. It affects the signing period in February.
2: Well, you know, in some ways, we're still, or even three years in, we're still waiting for this to settle and and sort of even out, and and so to where we consistently know what what this signing day means. And I, and I say that in the sense that you know, two years ago, first the first early signing period, about sixty five percent of the FBS uh, prospects um, signed their letters of intent in December. Last year that number was seventy-seven percent. That's a pretty big jump in one year. I'm, I'm assuming that it's going to go to hover around eighty percent this cycle, but I don't know. Maybe it gets up to eighty-five percent. Maybe you know, maybe it, it, it creeps higher than that. But the, the the bottom line, whether it keeps on growing or settles at seventy-seven or dip seventy-five, whatever it is, the reality is that this is the, the signing period. Uh, the February one is just sort of cleaning up the loose end. This is. This is the important day and the decisive day, uh, in the college football recruiting calendar. And, and, you know, what that means is now there's, um, you know, a, a, an acceleration of the process, uh, offers going out earlier, commitments going out earlier, official visits coming in earlier, uh, everything speeds up. And, uh, and, and so as we, you know, circle this day and, and, and Inch towards it. Um, it. It's it's it really has become uh, a day where everyone's pretty much got their full class um, for the most part, anyways, and, and they're just kind of finishing finishing things up.
1: Okay, so if you if you're a person who recu- who uh, who follows recruiting pretty closely, you know a lot of you know who's going to be number one and and the recruiting rankings. But let's speak to those who maybe are a little outside that loop, and if you maybe you've heard. Clemson's got an amazing class coming in. And Clemson has been doing this with some high level recruiting, what it's done, you know, becoming a power on the level of Alabama. But this class seems to have taken Clemson a step up. For those of us who don't necessarily follow the recruiting day to day, Give us a little insight on what this Clemson class looks like comparative to other Clemson classes and sort of in comparison to like what you've expected over the years out of the great Alabama recruiting and Ohio State and things along those lines.
2: Well, <clears throat> Clemson has recruited three areas as well as anyone in college football, maybe better than anyone in college football. And there are three really important areas. Um, defensive line, wide receiver, and quarterback. Those have been, I think, the three spots that have driven Clemson to the the heights that uh, it has achieved. And this is just another class with uh, those three spots really getting hit hard. In particular, this is the defensive line class. They've got three of the top six defensive linemen in the country, according to 24-7 Sports Composite. That is that is pretty remarkable. They have the number one player in the country, Brian Brzee, the number four player in the country, Miles Murphy. Those two guys are um, absolute instant impact guys on the defensive line. If they're not playing and making an impact next year, I'll be, I'll be pretty shocked. Um, and they have the, the number one quarterback in the country, DJ Uyangalale. And, and this is the other thing, um yeah, you know, they always have five stars and they always recruit well at the top, but they typically do it in their footprint and the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, um, get up along the, the, the Eastern Seaboard, there, here, and there, but this year they're going real national. Uh, DJ is a Southern California kid, um, and uh, that has been a pretty big boon for them. And, and sort of, I think they've leaned into their sort of national brand that they've they built here over the last few years. And getting a kid like DJ, who's six foot four, two hundred fifty pounds, major league baseball prospect, eighty plus yard arm, and that's not even hyperbole. I compare him to Jamarcus Russell, not. You know, erase the off-field, you know, nonsense with Jamarcus Russell, just the, the, the raw talent that that dude had. I mean, he was the number one pick in the draft. That's, that's the kind of raw talent that DJ has. And, uh, uh, for the, for Clemson to continue to recruit that position, to have that sort of succession plan after Trevor Lawrence, next up DJ Uyangalule, and then all these defense alignment coming in, I mean, just, Hey, everybody get used to Clemson being at the top. They they're not going anywhere.
1: You know, again, I don't see these prospects nearly to the extent that you do, but I was out in California working on a story and and I went to Bosco to see DJ Ungalele and his, you know, the rest of his teammates out there. What stood out to me about him and the guy who came to mind to me was Jameis Winston because he's so thick in the lower body for a for an 18-year-old, he seems like he is already like a fully developed man and the ball just sort of jumps out of his hand. So you add that that is essentially the next guy, right? I mean it's it's Trevor Lawrence, DJ comes in for a year, red shirts, and then this is the next guy to take over. And that's how you sustain dynasties. So after Clemson at the top of the rankings it's the usual subs- suspects because this is how college football and recruiting works it's the usual usual suspects is there anybody within that you're that you're expecting to to land in the top 10 that not necessarily is a surprise as far as the name but maybe the way they went about it that's just a notable team within the top 10 that you thought they did a a remarkable job considering X or Y, or they have a class that might be able to push the conversation on them in a couple of years towards not just maybe being a a good program, but being a program that ends up being in the uh, college football playoff.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I mean, the top ten, like you mentioned, really is the usual suspects, particularly in the top five. I mean, it's Clemson, Alabama, LSU, Ohio State. You know, I mean, no no shocker there. Um, I, I think that the school... In the top ten, that jumps out to me a little bit as as of note and sort of worth monitoring is Florida, um, because Dan Mullen arrived at Florida. No, no one had any doubts about his coaching chops. Uh, the the question, if there was one, was all right. How's he going to recruit? Is you know is when Florida was great? It was when Urban Meyer was there, you know, having number one classes. And as good as as good as Dan Mullen is the coach, and as as uh, as good as Florida is from a talent perspective, I mean, I, I still think you gotta you gotta really be duking it out with Alabama and LSU and Clemson to be playing for national titles, um, duking it out on the recruiting trail. And so, I, I would say over the first couple cycles here, it's been uh, adequate from a recruiting standpoint for Florida, um, adequate, maybe even underwhelming. I don't know. I mean, it just, just didn't really move the needle good enough, uh, but not, not sort of a recruiting uh, pace that's going to elevate that program. But as as this signing day approaches, Georgia's sitting there at number seven, and the, there's potential that Florida has a really big day uh, on, on – uh, on Wednesday, uh, they've they've got some possible flips out there. They're battling Alabama for a stud defensive tackle named Timothy Smith, who's committed Alabama that they could could potentially flip. Texas A&M's got a commit named Donald Harris out of Florida that the Gators are trying to flip. They they just flipped a kid from from Tennessee named Mordecai McDaniel out of the D.C. area. That's a, a really talented defensive back, and so you know Florida could could really close with a flurry like that and uh, you know start start sort of knocking down the, the the door of the top five all of a sudden i think you you start to um i don't know look at look at the the way things are trending um in a pretty encouraging light with the gators uh so i i'm, I'm anxious to see if they can close the deal and, and really prove that uh, dan mullen's up to the task here for uh, a you know i don't know national title level recruiting
1: Right, because it's not just Clemson and LSU and Alabama. It's Georgia that's been recruiting at that level within the SEC East. So Florida has someone within their division. For, for, for Florida, you can say, well, top 10, top 15, that's pretty good. But if, if Georgia is recruiting top five, top six almost every year, then Florida needs to be in that area too to be competitive, not just for national championships, but to just get out of their own division. Let me Absolutely. Sp- let me spin it this and, way. And, and oh, I would, sure.
2: I would just add too, just just like because to me right now there's five teams that are recruiting at a at a tier above everyone else, and and there's and and you know Texas and Texas A&M have have made some sort of cameos into this tier, but to me it's, it's really Clemson, Alabama, LSU, Ohio State, and Georgia. I think those are the five that are year in year out have the I don't know the carry the 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 heavy bats so to speak and are capable of sort of contending for number one classes year in year out consistently and so to your point you know florida's got to compete with one of those in georgia and so it, it would be you know some some teams have to sort of take progressive steps to get into that tier um if florida can take those progress those sort of um those steps Uh, year by year and, and just start to trend up into that tier and they find themselves there consistently, then that's, that's, that's important. That's, that's meaningful.
1: I just want to remind everybody, we are recording this on the Tuesday before the signing period opens on Wednesday. So you might be listening to this as some of this stuff has already happened. We're going to try to talk some big picture recruiting angles here, but let me, let me ask you a little bit about this. Do you, and again, we're, you know, so you might be listening to this after it's already happened, but do you expect a lot of drama over the next couple of days? Because to me, it would seem that, as far as individual players, because to me, it would seem like if you're a kid who's on the fence and thinking about flipping, Well, you might as well just wait until February. It seems like the the creation of the early signing period has maybe taken some of that away so that what we'll see Wednesday, Thursday, maybe even into Friday, though most of the activity gets taken care of on Wednesday, tends to fall into place with relatively little drama.
2: No, I I do expect some drama, honestly. And and I think ultimately what what it's all about is just, I mean, all February is the deadline. Um, or the, you know, the old signing period, it was just a deadline. You know, these kids could, whenever the deadline is, um, they're going to, there's going to be some uncertainty. And with the early signing period becoming the status quo, um, that's just the deadline most of these kids have created for themselves. And so because of that, um, and because classes are filling up and, and, you know, kids feel like they need to make this decision, they're Some of the same pressures still apply, and the deadline is still there. And so, I I don't, I I, got a, I'm having a hard time remembering if this is unique to this year and we've worked up to this, or whether this was, you know, like this last year, too. But it feels like there's a lot of potential flips tomorrow um, on Wednesday. Uh, It feels like there's a lot of movement that we could see. Uh, and I think that's all about, again, sort of normalizing this as the early this early signing day as the signing day, and coaches retraining themselves, players training themselves to treat this this you know last couple weeks before December 18th as uh, the you know treat it with the same urgency and frenetic activity as you would late January in the old days, and I think you know we're seeing that sense of urgency. And, uh, we're seeing some guys put to some decisions. Um, and I think typically the guys that are waiting until February, I mean, a couple guys are smart and just, hey, getting it. They don't, they don't need to feel the pressure. They're going to wait. A couple guys are saying, hey, um, uh, my options may improve in January and that's great. But most kids are just saying, look, signing day is December. Uh, mm-hmm. let's, it's time for me to, to, to make the final call.
1: Give me two or three very prominent players and, and a little like thumbnail scouting report who you expect, who are, who are sort of on the fence, but you expect in the next couple of days to make a decision or maybe even make a flip. Yeah, I mean,
2: the flips, you know, I, I think Jace McClellan is a running back committed to Oklahoma. He, he's, he's one to watch that Alabama has really been working on. I talked about Timothy Smith, who's a big defensive tackle that's committed to Bama and Florida's working on him. Um, I think Malcolm Green is a defensive back, kind of a slot safety committed to LSU. He's probably going to flip to Clemson. Um, uh, you know, Johnny Wilson is a big wide receiver, uh, committed to Oregon that is probably going to flip to Arizona State. A, a name to watch, a kid from California who's originally from Georgia, who's one of the best receivers in the country. His name is Jermaine Burton. Uh, he's committed to LSU. He visited Georgia over the weekend. He's going to be a, a kid that, that LSU is probably going to have to sweat out a little bit and, and he may even, you know, to your point, like that's that's a kid that may even hold off and, um, you know, extend his, his signing until the next period. Um, I, the, the guys uncommitted that are, are most, I'm, I'm most anxious to keep an eye on and, and everyone is really is uh, linebacker Justin Flow, a mm-hmm. uh, Southern California kid that is, has really been trending to Clemson throughout most of the process, but as as signing days approached, he's been much more inclined to stay closer to home. And now it's looking like a Oregon USC battle. So that's a little bit of a I don't know a, a a statement opportunity for Mario Cristobal to sort of put his 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 boot on the throat of, of Clay Helton and USC, and and you know on the other side of it, it's USC's opportunity to really sort of stand up and say, this is still our conference. Uh, you're not getting the, the best player from Southern California. Um, so that, that'll that be really interesting. And then probably the, the most intriguing kid or, or the biggest mystery kid is Jordan Birch, who is a five-star, number five player in the country, defensive end, out of Columbia, South Carolina. He's 6'5", 275 pounds. Um, just, you know, the, the the typical stud freak, you know, Southeastern defender. Clemson has been a favorite for him. South Carolina, he plays as Will Muschamp's son. That's his quarterback. South Carolina's got a real shot there. So does Georgia, who got the official visit last weekend. So does LSU. So does Bama. So it's like, you know, that that one is a kid that doesn't talk to anybody. No one really knows. The coaching staffs don't know. So there's plenty of uncertainty and unknown around what he's going to do uh, tomorrow.
1: Are there any uh, high-profile kids who have said, I am absolutely not signing in December. Come visit me. In other words, who are you tracking that you know, okay, when it comes to February, when we're just kind of cleaning up around the edges, here are the you know handful of players that we're going to be tracking?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a few guys that are also announcing in the, the All-American Bowls, too, okay. um, who might sign quietly and then announce in those All-American Bowls. Which, um, okay, just to, for, for,
1: for the novices, uh, just uh, explain what that means.
2: Yeah, so the, you know, there's the Under Armour game and the, the, uh, well, formerly the Army All-American Bowl, uh, those games are, are taking place in early January and a lot of kids have their announcement ceremonies at those and, uh, on, on live TV. And so, you know, guys like Keely Ringo, uh, who's a five-star corner out of Arizona, a five-star tight end Darnell Washington out of Nevada, five-star running back Zach Evans out of Houston. Those guys are probably going to sign quietly. And then make their decisions known in uh, in January at those games. Um, so those are those are guys that are holding off, but still kind of making their decision. Uh, at least that's that's the expectation. There are a few guys though that you know are waiting until February. I'd, I'd say like one of the guys I'm most interested in on that front. And he, you know, who knows? You know, some of these guys may may surprise us and sign. But Alfred Collins is a six foot six defensive lineman out of Texas who is a basketball player, had good junior film, but senior film was just off the charts, just totally took it to the next level to the point where, you know, he's going to be in the All-American Bowl in San Antonio and will have a chance to, you know, play for five-star status. His mom went to Texas, played basketball there. Texas is working on him. Baylor's working on him. Oklahoma, you know, this is the type of kid who's planning on waiting until February and with all the other big fish out of the way, uh, th- this one could, could get really high, in, you know, high intensity kind of battle because I think with the way he's projecting, uh, the way I think I expect him to play at the All American Bowl and with the expectation that he's not going to sign, you know, that's the type of player that becomes, you know, priority number one for, for the schools that are in the, in the hunt for him.
1: Barton Simmons from 24/7 sports he is the scouting director you can catch him on CBS Barton I want to take a quick break here and come back I want to do a, a just could a go around the country hit a couple of teams and topics in particular relatively rapid fire you mentioned one of them I, I want to I want to sort of head into Texas and see what's going on there but first a quick break here in the AP top 25 college football podcast <laughs>
0: This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.
1: And we're back with Barton Simmons from 24-7 Sports. He is the scouting director there. We are talking recruiting. It is the opening of the signing period this week. Early signing period, but it has become the signing period. Most teams will have most of their work done by the time Friday rolls around. Barton, I wanted to take you back into Texas. You had mentioned AM and Texas have sort of every once in a while make a cameo in that top five. Texas A&M may be trending toward a top five class I'm interested to, to, to know what you think of where Texas A&M might be heading. The product on the field the last two years has been okay. They were sort of overwhelmed by a, by a really great schedule this year. But by year three, Jimbo Fisher is getting paid $7.5 million a year, and Texas A&M wants national championships. So do you think they have been trending in a direction that could show some legit signs of national championship scc championship potential by next year i'm just sort of reading the tea leaves on the recruiting classes do you think they're moving in that direction
2: yeah i mean national championship is that's, that's, that's tough. obviously yeah. A big step. <laughs> right. yeah no i mean but but i mean i think from a talent perspective they're bringing in the guys that can get them there they're bringing in the right kind of athletes they're bringing in the right Sized athletes, you know, the right body types, the the sort of players that, uh, you, you sort of are prerequisites to get in there. I think, in you know, Jimbo Fisher to a certain degree is, um, you know, I mean, D- Dabo Sweeney is the type of guy at the Clemson that, like, he'll, he's never sacrificing, um, bringing in the guys that sort of are, are fits for them, for, for their program. Mm-hmm. I think Jimbo Fisher has kind of the Georgia mentality. Uh, of just they're going to go find freaks Wh- wherever they can find freaks they're going to get them they're going to find them they're going to bring them in they want long they want length they want speed they want they want mass uh <clears throat> so that's sort of the way that they've approached recruiting um and and i think that they're so they're going to have a team that looks national title worthy um and i think that you know as we you know they're, they're bringing back pretty much everybody next year i think the the expectation is that some of those guys they're bringing back are going to get beat out by guys that are younger than them, mm-hmm. that they've recruited well enough to where now they've got competition in the roster and you just, you know, you're not just going to play because you played before. And that's, I think that's an encouraging sign. Um, so I, I, so to answer your question, I think from a recruiting in their from a recruiting perspective, yeah, I think that they're, they're pacing the right way. Um, and, and, and yet, uh, Ultimately, I know that this uh, how brutal that schedule was and they beat everyone they were supposed to beat. But, hey, when you're trying to get to that level, you got to beat some teams that and, and sort of have that level-up performance from time to time, too. And so I'm still waiting on that level-up performance on the field. And I think we'll see more of that next year. But that's going to be a real telling year for, for A&M, there, there's no doubt.
1: Yeah, you know, it's the neighborhood you live in. If you want to compete locally, you have to compete with Alabama and LSU. And they're they're recruiting at a pace and building at a pace and playing at a pace that is really, really hard to catch up with. Now, Texas doesn't have that same issue in the Big 12. Texas, generally speaking, has Oklahoma. And Texas should really be recruiting at the level that is closer, not just at Oklahoma's level, but really should be at the top of the Big 12 when it comes to recruiting. We saw the Longhorns take a step back on the field this year, which in some ways shouldn't have been as shocking as it was because they, they're still in the process of remaking that roster with the type of players that you talk about when you talk about you know championship level playoff level quality rosters. But the slide back was maybe a little more dramatic by how they played on the field. So where is Texas and Tom Herman as far as building up that roster? As you look at his recruiting classes over the last couple of years, are you seeing, again, trend toward being the Texas that will be at the top of the Big 12 every year, and not just contending for Big 12 championships, but having the ability to sort of look at the national level and say, we can compete on this level. Maybe we're not in Alabama and LSU and Clemson yet, but we're, we're sort of trending toward that direction.
2: Well, I mean, Texas is really interesting because, I mean, I would think that right now, what they're putting on the field, if it were to represent their recruiting classes, they should be right there as a playoff dark horse as a big 12 contender um they're not obviously but there is some like there's some some freak scenarios here that they've been dealing with in particular last year's class you know it's they had the number three class in the country and yet you know that class includes brew mccoy who transferred from usc to Mm -hmm. texas and then texas back to usc and then with a health issue, hasn't even gotten on the field with USC. The second-best player in the class is Jordan Whittington, who was injured all year. Uh DeGabriel Floyd was one of the top players in the class out of California. Spinal stenosis, career-ending injury. They had another running back out of Georgia that had a stroke before he got on campus. Like, it's just sort of this weird deal, and, and injuries have plagued them throughout. And so you have to sort of throw a caveat in there with Texas. And yet, like, the other factor at play, which is, is interesting, you know, last year's class with Texas they had 26 signees. 14 of those guys were from out of state. Um, there was about 10 or 11 states represented on the Texas commit list. So maybe the, maybe when you don't know your commits as well and, and you're, you're going all over the country, you, you might have some injuries pop up that you weren't as aware of. I, I don't know. Um, I'll tell you what, though, it, this year in the class of 2020 – uh, you know how many out-of-state commits Texas
1: has? How many? One. Oh. they
2: got one guy. And like, oh, so I was going to say, because that, that
1: shouldn't of... be the case with Texas. There's enough guys in state that they should have a, mostly a Texas class, and that was always the problem with, with Charlie Strong. The complaint about Strong is that, well, he had these Florida ties, which seemed to be a good thing, but you'd sign these classes that look good on paper, and half the class wouldn't end up making it to the sophomore season.
2: That's, I mean, it, it's, it is uh... – you know the texas the state of texas the players there the coaches there the 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 in state culture football culture is so strong that that is sort of something that's always fascinating to watch these teams navigate um i mean look at you know i talked about what what texas a&m is doing they got like three commits on the defensive line out of new jersey um and and so i think obviously you want to Lean into that sort of brand as the flagship program in the state, um, and and you really want to capitalize on your natural resources if you're Texas. Um, but I think Tom Herman and, and I don't you know we'll see if this you know if last year was the was the outlier, if this year is the outlier. But um, it appeared early on that Tom Herman wanted to just find the best players wherever they may be and not limit himself to the state of Texas, um, and. Uh, you know, I mean when you look at who's winning national titles and playing for national titles right now, um, there are teams that are recruiting nationally. Alabama's doing it, L S U is doing it, L S U has six guys out of the state of Louisiana this year mm-hmm. committed. That's a pretty low number for L S U. Uh Ohio State's recruiting nationally. Um obviously they're you know, Ohio State doesn't have the natural resources of Texas, but uh Ohio State's gone in there and, and in fact won some players out of Texas. So uh, I think Tom Herman maybe early has, has wrestled with how to approach recruiting in the state, um, how much to sort of circle the wagons and, and lock up the border, and how much to just say, "Hey, screw it, we're going to go find the best players wherever they are." And I think that speaks to the the, the margin for error of winning national titles and uh, and and how you know pressure packed that is and, and those strategic decisions are, but. Um, I think it's a, it's sort of a, it's fascinating to watch these coaches dig into this and and, and, and figure out their sort of broad strategy to to approach that sort of uh, question
1: yeah it it's interesting the national as opposed to more local recruiting, and I guess to a certain degree, everybody can be national now because of television and social media yeah. to the extent where even if you talk to you know we when we ran each other, into each other at the personnel convention in, in Nashville, you talk to you know schools like northwestern and, and they think more nationally but I, I think the difference between the top programs so everybody's sort of thinking a little more nationally because they can reach farther and wider than ever before but what seems to be happening now is the pool of the the real blue chippers that upper tier level of recruit is getting recruited nationally by just a handful of schools so there's a handful of schools who are sort of who seem to be and this is my read on it for somebody who's not an expert on it that the very top 100 let's say guys top 200 guys are Being picked over. Maybe it's even less than that. Maybe it's top 60 are being picked over by a handful of schools and it doesn't matter where they are. And and then everybody else is sort of like sort of settling into their region to a certain degree but going a little outside here and there, but selectively. But when it comes to the very top tier of guys, it's not selective. Really, those players and those those elite players and these elite teams are getting together and sorting it out. And really, it's again, it's not necessarily a national or local thing. If you want to play at the very highest tier, you're dipping into that top 60 pool, and it doesn't matter where they live.
2: Yeah, and I think that they feel. I think those sort of programs are feeling the the not the pressure, but the the necessity of of approach. You know, taking a national approach, and I think kids are more open to being recruited nationally than ever before, based on a, a variety of factors. But I think that's what makes the current climate of recruiting really interesting and fun. Is, is hey, all right, look if Ohio State's going to spend all this time recruiting in the state of Florida and the state of Texas and the state of California. Um, and, and Ohio State has probably done as good a job as anybody is getting the right guys, evaluating at a high level, getting high character guys, you know, hitting on all those guys. So there's, uh, there's no, I'm, I have no criticism or critique for that approach. I think it's been a great one for Ohio State, but if they're doing that, all right, well, all these Ohio Midwest kids that would typically land at Ohio State, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Northwestern can get one of those guys. Maybe Wisconsin can. Maybe, you know, Michigan State can. So I think. Um, I don't know. I mean, recruiting is always about evaluating and and developing and, and um, you know and and, and grant strategy. But I feel like it's no longer just look. Alabama is going to get the top ten guys in Alabama, and you know LSU is going to get the top twelve in in the state of Louisiana. And then you know we'll we'll see how the rest shakes out. I think that there is I don't know more more uh, of a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, in terms of the way it all fits together, and if you are savvy as a recruiting department, um, as, a, as a collective of evaluators, uh, uh, and can sort of identify some areas where your program fits in the grand scheme of things and some vulnerabilities, and, 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 and you know, I think you can really have some success just given the sort of overall flattening of the earth from a recruiting standpoint and the, the nationalization of things.
1: So let me hit on a couple of uh, sort of specific teams that maybe broaden out to larger topics. And that is, you know, USC, obviously with the Clay Helton situation playing out the way it did, you know, most people had him fired in October. And that's not a way to, to, you know, to build a recruiting class. How are they doing as far as salvaging this class? And maybe more importantly, what are they looking like in 2021? Because, listen, we're already well into the 2021 cycle now because of the the speed with which this works. Are there any positive signs that maybe, you know, Clay has enough stability there to, again, salvage this class and build into next year?
2: You know – uh, I've, I've I've already done so many interviews today that I can't remember if we've already talked. Have we talked about Justin Flow?
1: You know, yeah, yeah, We <laughs> we did, and 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 how he is now now looking at uh, Oregon and USC, and that would be right, okay. that would be a, that seems like it would be a tipping point for USC, right? So if they can get Flow, does that is that a guy who sort of again does that salvage a class that's looking that was sort of like lying in the 30s, and now all of a sudden it could be could they manage to be a top 20 class?
2: Well, and to be clear, they're lying in the 80s right now. Okay. Um, so they, you know, but, but but I think that they, you know, the expectation is that USC could potentially get up in the 30s, could, and, and with a guy like Flo, um, you know, maybe getting a guy like Gary Bryant at the All-American Bowl, um, who's a receiver out of Southern California. Like, those are the kind of guys that could inch USC up and towards that top 25. Um, but, no, I think the, I mean, I, to me, the reason he is so important is that that would be a, just a statement like all right we're not going anywhere like we're still we still are usc we still can get the best linebacker in america uh to come to this program no matter what clay helton status is like the trojans the trojans and and so uh i think that's going to be a really important one but i like your point is well taken that it's not really about 2020 for usc it's i mean it is but they're not recruiting that well this year and it's not even to me like a misleading class that's just low on numbers and oh but they got a bunch of studs it's just you know once the class fills up they'll be top whatever like I don't think this is a typical USC class in terms of the actual quality of the players that are currently committed and so that's 2020 and 2021 is I mean, why should we expect it to be any different? Clay Helton's still going to be a lame duck coach. He's still going to be a guy that everyone sort of assumes is going to be replaced next year. Um, and and with the nature of the early signing period, um, the you know whatever success USC can find on the field next year, like if USC surprises folks and crushes it on the field, then it's you know most of these guys are committed before the season anyways. Most of these guys have sort of right. made their bed before the season has begun. They've got a quarterback committed that's a really good player and Jake Garcia. Um, they've got, you know, a, another couple front seven commits that are good players. So, you know, USC will always sort of recruit at this minimum level that um, it's just it's impossible not to get players at USC. Um, but I think that's sort of the, the struggle of, new athletic director Mike Bone and, and and making the decision like he did is you're you're now like if, if you if Clay Helton doesn't work out, then now you've really got potentially two cycles mm-hmm. of recruiting struggles that are totally reflective of the uncertainty around the head coach and uh, the future of the program.
1: I want to hit to the ACC for a second because there's a couple of schools that are in the top 25 that, first of all, the ACC could use a boost. And I'm going to put Miami to a side because Miami's been doing this thing where they do top 20 classes and don't win any games for a while. So I'm kind of tired of talking about that. But North Carolina and Georgia Tech, you know, Mac Brown has always been a great recruiter. Uh, North Carolina is not a, is not a school that gets a lot of top ten, to top fifteen or twenty classes, but they're sort of trending in that direction. And over at Georgia Tech, you know, the plan was if they could get Jeff Collins in there, there are so many players around the Georgia area that they don't necessarily have to beat Georgia for players to still be able to sort of, you know, have top 20, top 25 classes. Are these the two programs that when you sort of look at the long term of the ACC, assuming Florida State will eventually get its act together, we're not sure what the hell's going on with Miami, but are North Carolina and Georgia Tech the programs that could you could say like, you know what, over the next four or five years, maybe these are not necessarily the challengers to Clemson, but the programs that bring the ACC like, You know, top twenty-five teams, contenders in in a sense for things bigger than just you know squeaking by in the coastal.
2: Yeah, I I do. I mean, when you look at the top twenty-five, those are I think North Carolina, Georgia Tech stand out to me as probably, regardless of conference, the two non-traditional. I guess would be the way to say it. um, Members of that of that list, and and I think with Mac Brown there and with Jeff Collins there, assuming they get it done on the field, I think that they, I think there's every reason to believe that. They can continue to recruit at that level uh, moving forward, and so, um, you know, obviously, the, you know, the, the year-over-year improvement on the field ultimately dictates uh, whether these guys are going to be able to compete with, Cle- with with Clemson, and that that's going to be a long grind to get up to sort of be a contender with Clemson. I, I I do think Florida State will under Mike Marvell because I think he, he's just he's too good of a recruiter, too good of a coach. To not have Florida State heading in the right direction. I mean, Florida State had consecutive classes under Willie Taggart where they didn't sign a, a high school quarterback, um, yeah. and, and Mike Norvell had his guy signed within two days. Um, a guy named Kate Rodemaker, who's I think really talented, who was a USF commit. Um, I think that that Florida State will will start to recruit at a really high level again, and I think it'll, it won't take long. Yeah, I'm not saying it'll be this year, but I think um, you know 2021. I think you're going to see a really quality team. Uh, out of Florida State, um, but to get back to the again, sort of the new members, I think that and hey, North Carolina. I like, get this about Clemson. North Carolina had was a kid named Trenton Simpson was signed or not signed was committed to Auburn, um, decommitted, and was was assumed heading to North Carolina now for a couple months. uh He is an absolute monster. Linebacker, defensive end, plays, uh, running back for his high school, um, five star kid. And, and that was going to be, uh, another big addition. And they've got others that are really good in this class from North Carolina. That was going to be another huge addition for Mac Brown. Um, Clemson hadn't even offered him, got him on campus without an offer for an official visit last weekend and probably, uh, partially contingent, you know, because they saw Justin Flow trending elsewhere, uh, offered him. Weekend before signing day, a five-star kid, mind you, and uh, and and he commits a couple hours later. Ugh. Like that's the level <laughs> that Clemson is recruiting at, right. and that that's really un like that is very rare to see a five-star level kid who has offers from everyone he wants in the country. That very clearly, as a backup plan for a program, and he says that's the matter to me. I'm, I'll take it. We're in, and so that stings a little bit for North Carolina to lose him, but. There's still a lot to be excited about with this North Carolina class, and I can say the same thing about Georgia Tech. It's just fun to watch Georgia Tech engage again in recruiting um, and and really lean into their the natural resources of that program uh, in the you know in the, the greater Atlanta area in Georgia. Um, this is I think that Jeff Collins is uh, is absolutely going to elevate that program from a talent perspective over the next few years
1: okay last one for you and then we'll let you go to the next radio show or wherever else you got lined up and i do appreciate (laughs) you taking so much time sort of scan through maybe like a relatively new coach year two year three something along those lines and somebody who's just maybe not top 15 or top 20 but just doing better than you expected or doing better than has been or showing signs that like that guy looks like they get it they understand how to how to recruit to that program and has a chance of maybe turning things around and taking a program that has been struggling a little bit and making it relevant not just for a one off but maybe for a longer term.
2: You know, I love watching the new coaches and just seeing what they what they bring and and um, I think that that from a recruiting standpoint that those are the things that can really elevate a program. So I'm, I'm keeping an eye on a couple. I I, I think the hired Jimmy Lake at Washington. Um, is going to be similar to the hire of Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma and Ryan Day at Ohio State. I think as as much as I respect Chris Peterson, as good as he is, I think that's very similar to Stoops to Riley in terms of good coach, little old school, recruited well. I mean, Washington did recruit well. I'm not there, there's You really can't knock the way Washington has recruited, but I think there's a potential that Jimmy Lake could come in there and, and take it to the next level, mm-hmm. like really get in there and start battling with Oregon and, and really trying to win the Pac-12 in recruiting, um, and so we'll see what he can do this cycle. See if he can make a splash and, and, and make me right on that quickly, or whether that's a longer play. But um, I'm, I'm anxious to, to see what he can get done there. You know, the other one that's, um, and I can go a lot of directions, but I'm sort of got the new, like the, the brand new coaches on mm-hmm. my mind.
1: Sure,
2: Sam Pittman at Arkansas inherited a class that was ranked 119th in the country, and they're currently ranked 120th, and they've they've got six commits and he you know eight guys decommitted uh in the week following Chad Morris's firing um and and yet i and i look it's 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 a it's a tough hill to climb this cycle so i don't know what kind of impact he's going to make this cycle but i think that guy knows how to recruit i really and i think he knows the way to recruit to a place like arkansas and a big part of that is deciding you know what we're going to be the program that is a destination school for the big uglies, for mm-hmm. just the hog molly dudes that just want to come to the catfish hole at, at, in Fayetteville and 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 be the stars. And I think he's going to have some success with that. I mean, we and, and I think that's something Kirby Smart's got to deal with is this just, just departure of Sam Pittman as his offensive line coach and what he did and accomplished as a as a recruiter there. Uh, already, one guy decommitted, a couple others I think are going to wait until. February to sign, and and largely because of Sam Pittman's departure. And so, I, I I'm fascinated to see if he can really, you know, if his look. I know he can recruit offensive line. There's he did it at Arkansas the first time around. Um, you remember the I mean, they had they had dudes oh, up sure. front uh, when Sam Pittman was there in like 2013 to like 2015 range. So he's going to recruit offensive linemen again. Uh, you know, and it, it, it's it's going to be fun to see if he can recruit quarterbacks if he can recruit receivers um running backs whatever like i i think he's got the personality and the aggressive approach and the the, the skins on the wall to where um he knows how to do it uh we'll, we'll see how how attractive he can make faithful i think it should be interesting
1: Barton Simmons is the scouting director for 247 Sports, and he, you can catch him on CBS. You can catch him a lot of different places. You'll catch him a lot of places over the next few days. You'll sleep on Saturday, Barton, I promise. But for the next couple of days, <laughs> you got to go. I'll, I'll let you get back to your grind. Thanks so much for all the insight, all the time. Really appreciate you, man. And hopefully we'll catch each other in person sometime soon.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Ralph. Always uh, appreciate you having me on, man.
1: And now, three and out first down. USC, which as Barton discussed, isn't getting a ton of great news on the recruiting trail, but it did get some good news when it comes to coaching. Word came down this week that offensive coordinator Graham Harrell would stay with Clay Helton in LA. He was considering an offer from Texas, or at least being pursued by Texas and Tom Herman. Listen, the Trojans have work to do, but Keaton Slovis seemed to be a nice fit. In that air raid offense at quarterback, if a couple of their talented receivers sign up for another season, continuity alone should make USC the favorite in the Pac-12 South heading into 2020. Second down, some interesting TV news out of the Mountain West, though none of this has been confirmed by the league. John Orand, a really good reporter for Sports Business Journal, who's got some excellent sources on that end of the business, reported that the conference is likely leaving ESPN and will sign a deal with Fox, mostly to put its games on FS1, and will re-up a deal with CBS Sports Network. The money being thrown around is about $35 million a year. There's also some complications with that deal because, or any deal with the Mountain West because Boise State has a separate deal. The Hawaii gets a different deal from the rest of the conference. The rights fee bump, if things are going in the direction that's been reported, should be about $3 million a year, maybe even more than that. Regardless, even if it's only $3 million, that's a nice raise from the $1.1 per year that the schools were making from their last deals. It's still would trail far behind the American Athletic Conference, which was pushing over $6 million, maybe towards $7 million a year with its new ESPN deal. And that's one of the reasons why I think there were some, if anybody had noticed, while these reports hit about the new deal for the Mountain West, there was some pushback, some other reports that, no, 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 that's not the, the number. The Mountain West is really going to be looking at what the AAC makes and try to frame it in the best possible way because that's their number one competition. What I'm most interested to see is game times. The Mountain West and its ADs have been pretty clear that they were willing to leave some TV money on the table if they could get more control of their start times. The late starts were killing their gates, and they weren't getting enough exposure and revenue in return to justify it. The Mountain West will be a staple of FS1 and give Fox the rights to or at least some rights to Big Ten, Pac-12, Big 12 football games. And it also has every Big East hoops game. Next up on the television rights carousel is the SEC package that CBS has. That's a big one and Fox has its eye on it too. Third down. The AP All-America team came out this week, uh, the day before we are taping, so Monday. And as always, there are more deserving players than there are spots on the team. I won't call them snubs, but notable players I would have liked to have made a little room for, if I could have, on the team. And remember, it's not just me putting the team together. We have a panel that votes, and I put my input in, but we like to try to go strictly by the voting. But some notable players that I think deserved the spot or could have deserved the spot and certainly are worth mentioning. Marlon Davidson of Auburn had a monster year at defensive end. His teammate, Derek Brown, got a lot of attention, but Davidson was almost as good, certainly at a plate at an elite level, but that's a pretty loaded position, defensive end, and he got left off. Davidson's teammate, Jeremiah Dinson, also had a terrific year at safety. He missed the cut. The guy who I believe might be the most underrated cornerback in the country was Caleb Farley from Virginia Tech. He did not make the All-America team. Texas had a really disappointing season, but receiver Devin Duvernay was certainly worthy of being an All-American. Again, so many good receivers who had such outstanding numbers that he, even though he was one of the most consistent players in the country, sort of got nudged to the side. Also, Memphis running back Kenneth Gainwell missed out on a spot on the All-America team to a pile of upperclassmen running backs who had really good years. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo from the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.
0: This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.